my name is Lori Ellis, and I'm a writer and editor with Sightline. Today, I'm here with Rebecca Starkey, Senior Global Patient Engagement Director at Advanced Clinical, and Tracy Parker, Vice President, Biometrics at Advanced Clinical, to discuss how the diversity, equity, and inclusion measures continue to evolve in the clinical space. I want to thank you for joining me today, and let's dive in. So the first question obviously seems to be, what has changed in patient recruitment from prior to the pandemic to now? And then why do you think that is? And specifically, could we address how patient recruitment strategies have changed and how did it influence diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, sure. I think the COVID-19 pandemic brought a lot of attention to clinical research and the immediate need for it. I mean, personally, I was per like somewhat surprised to see the amount of scepticism that still exists today about research and, and the vaccines and the infections. You know, you didn't, I guess you had to be on social media during that time to see the sort of kind of comments that were and people's opinions that were being expressed. I mean, really, I guess opinions that have been vocalised in a way that we've never seen in our, in, well, certainly in my lifetime, I'm not sure when the last pandemic was, but I, I doubt very much that they had social media at that point. So, yeah, the scepticism, I guess, over what we do in clinical research really surprised me. When I come to work every day, it's really for the betterment of medicines for, for people, to make treat better treatments, to make cures for people. And that's kind of really what motivates me to come in and, and do my job. I think because the vaccines were, were kind of developed very quickly, they were newly developed. There was an awful lot of apprehension, understandably, by people about agreement to take them. I saw lots of comments about the speed of development, that they couldn't possibly be safe if they were developed this quickly. And I think that certainly highlights the, still the need for it, like improving education about what we do in clinical research and the importance of it in everyday life for everyone. There's not the same kind of scepticism when you go and have a um, like dental procedure and then you take antibiotics it's kind of very much accepted now that that's that's how we kind of conduct our life but obviously you know years prior to that penicillin wasn't available and people could have died from that sort of procedure there, there was kind of bringing the DNI aspect into it there was a lot of work that was done during the vaccine uptake in, in lots of different communities. My actual hometown in the UK is an example of this. It's a small town in the northwest and it has a really high population of, of people that are from southern Asia. And I know that doctors were really proactive into going into some of the, the mosques and some of the other local places in those communities to talk about the need for the vaccine. So for a long time, this town had really high rates of COVID-19. I'm sure there's many reasons for it. Some of them may be kind of socio-economically related because of the background of the city, of the town too. But what was really kind of reassuring was that the tactics worked. They did drive up the vaccine uptake in those in those communities and in those groups. And I've kind of heard also that from colleagues in the US that there were similar initiatives that took place in the US as well. I'm not sure that this has changed how we recruit patients into clinical trials however long term, unfortunately. I think other than it's brought us some really much needed visibility to research, there's still a lot of work to be done. I mean, some of that great work that was being done in those communities, I feel like that has just been completely abandoned now, unfortunately. 
I mean, it's it's clear why. It's it's because people that were doing that were were doing it for altruistic reasons. Um, they were taking their time to kind of go into those communities because they they could see the urgency and the need for it. And now that that has has kind of dissipated, some of that great work has has also gone with it. I think one thing that we did change, which has stayed with us, is some of the aspects of bringing in sort of decentralisation of, of clinical trials. We had to change how we worked in a very short space of time and very quick speed. And it wasn't just kind of CROs, it was farmers, it was biotechs, it was ethics and regulatory committees. I mean, everyone really had to had to adapt. So things like shipping medications directly to patients, the use of telehealth visits and home nursing, I mean, those sort of things went up hugely. We are still using those today in kind of strategies when we're putting together kind of strategies for running clinical trials and, and what we feel is important. Um, so that is really positive thing that's come out of the pandemic. Obviously, we talk about the accessibility of clinical trials to patients and families. And DCT is one of the aspects that, that kind of goes into that. It does help ease the burden on people. It means that they, like if they're juggling lives, work, families, maybe they were carer themselves, it does kind of mean that perhaps if they can have some of that time at home with somebody coming to them, that they can actually then participate a little bit more. But yeah, Tracy, do you, what do you think? Yeah, so Becky, you've raised some really excellent points. I, I have to agree with pretty much everything that you've said. And I, I also want to just kind of acknowledge the the joy I am finding in being able to have this conversation when you and I are bringing different perspectives from a regional basis. I, From my perspective, and I, I don't want to repeat things that were applicable that you've already stated, but a couple of things I want to just kind of highlight from the U.S. side of things, the pandemic for sure highlighted in our space more than ever the disparity in healthcare among marginalized communities. And it sounds like you saw a little bit of that too in the UK even. So we saw these communities impacted by much higher rates of death in such a way that it brought greater awareness of the improvements that are needed within our healthcare system from the perspective of cost, coverage, and and education. But what I also want to highlight, too, is that there were other influences related to DEI around the same time. So let's remember that in the early months of the pandemic, uh, there was tremendous social unrest in the United States with the murder of George Floyd. This also created a movement for diversity equity, inclusion, and justice that was felt across all industries with raised awareness of the need for change. So while COVID absolutely influenced a focus on diversity, there were also additional social factors that further exposed the critical need for significant improvement in DEI, which those things do continue today. Fantastic. So you've addressed some of the type of barriers that are happening, some of the distrust that's in the community. Let's go further and start talking about what are some of the barriers for um, DEI for early patient recruitment in phase one and two studies and why. And when I say why, I would like to know what are the barriers at each level? 
So from the sponsor's perspective, which is different from the healthcare provider's perspective and the on-site perspective, and then from the patient perspective as well. Sure. Um, maybe I could start on this one. And it's nice, Laurie, that you kind of pull out all the different stakeholders in this and that we're talking about the three different perspectives, because I think that's really important as each brings their own challenge to the table, shall we say. I think for sponsors, when you kind of considering patient recruitment and tactics around that, unfortunately, budget is always kind of a, a constraint. It's particularly in, in the early phase development of clinical trials, the so phase one and two, when you're kind of looking for smaller numbers of patients, you know, return on in investment can sometimes feel quite heavy for the number of patients that you're looking for, perhaps. So sometimes they're probably considered like an optional or a nice to have rather than a necessity. I mean, I do think that can be a false economy of not planning in those things in advance, because invariably, if recruitment doesn't go to plan, then timelines are obviously expanded upon. That invariably asks adds budget to it at the same time and then also it slows down the development process overall and what we're trying really to do is to is to get those treatments to market as quickly as possible so that patients can benefit from them I think sometimes also I've seen in the past kind of where clients haven't fully understood the patient epidemiology and the diagnosis and the study journeys I've definitely seen a big movement more towards kind of understanding patient perspectives more and more kind of clients that we work with from a CRO perspective now are doing that they are bringing patient advisory boards on on board or speaking to patients and patient advocacy groups and that is I guess that's one of the the key developments that I've seen over over the last few years as, as to be real a care strength but that obviously comes with with again with budget and and not everybody has the money to be able to spend on that unfortunately and also kind of DCT I, you know I don't think that DCT decreases costs. I've done an analysis on it personally, but I, I wouldn't imagine so. Obviously, you're bringing in additional vendors. Those kind of background things need to be trained. You know, sites need to understand it. And sometimes they, they're not always kind of making things more efficient. They're, they're kind of, they're also adding, you know, extra budget to the project overall as well. So sometimes DCT is not built in properly or thought, well through in terms of what advantages it can bring that can also kind of be a, con a concern for clients where they're concerned with the budget of it. I think for healthcare providers I can't imagine how difficult it must be to be a doctor in this kind of age and and to be kind of seeing patients with like I don't know 10 minutes per appointment how they can possibly have the time to fully understand a patient's needs, to be able to diagnose them, to be able to treat them appropriately in that amount of time. That certainly doesn't give them time to kind of sit and look for viable options on the internet around clinical trials. Maybe, I mean, it's great if that particular institution is running that clinical trial. Obviously, you would expect the, the staff there to be aware of it. But in order to offer patients the full visibility of full spectrum of what's out there, certainly people are missing out on opportunities to to get involved in clinical trials because they're not being run at every every institution and not every institution is is kind of aware of those studies and, and the benefit that they may have for a patient and also i mean honestly we all have our own prejudice and, and there may be prejudice within healthcare providers themselves about clinical research and actually when the right time is to suggest that to a patient i 
have had in the past a, a personal kind of colleague of mine um, that I've worked with who's a patient advocate. She was diagnosed with lung cancer, a specific type of lung cancer, and she was told kind of by the, the treating doctor that, that she had X amount of time to live and, and that was it. And clinical trials were never brought to the table for that individual. She actually advocated for herself spent lots of time on Google and found some clinical trials herself and advocated for her own health. And I'm very pleased to say that she's she's still around to tell the story about her journey, you know, even some 10 years later. Uh, but had she not done that, had she not advocated for herself, she possibly wouldn't be. So I think, you know, healthcare providers, I mean, they obviously they do their best, but they also bring things to the table as well, like prejudice about you know, clinical research and, and whether to offer it to a patient. Also, resource and time on sites. I mean, even the sites that are participating in studies, they're often very time short or possibly under-resourced and can't possibly fit in all of the studies that are available. So even if they are running a study, maybe a patient isn't offered the trial just because of, of managing resource loads. It often also feels like as an industry, we kind of reutilize the same pool of sites or the same PIs over and over. It's completely understandable why we do that because we have the, the data on those sites. We know which ones potentially have pools of patients. We know which sites are, are good at recruiting patients into studies and they're proactive in that. But it doesn't mean it means that we kind of somehow don't necessarily open up the opportunities to clinical trials in potential sites in locations where we might not otherwise go to. I spoke with a UK physician not that long ago and, and he mentioned that like doctors here, they're just not aware that the opportunities exist for them to, to participate in studies. They don't know how to get into clinical research. So it would be great for, you know, there's improvement in there, shall we say, that not only educating patients about clinical trials it's also about educating healthcare providers as well and then the last stakeholder I guess patients I mean I mentioned that the lady that I know Mavis and but unless you're advocating for yourself using the internet you're using patient groups health communities you're looking for advice I mean you might not know that clinical trials even exist and then even if you do find them, how do you know that that's a trusted source? How do you know that that's safe? It must be, I can't imagine how difficult it must be to be given a, maybe a life-changing diagnosis, then to go on the internet and kind of search for things and know what you can and can't trust. Even if you find a study, I mean, it may be that like if you're in rare disease or like a rare kind of cancer, maybe the only site that is running the studies a long distance away from you. Quite often in the early development phase of studies, we know we don't have a lot of sites. And so I, I know of clients that have flown people all over the country, internal in the country or even from other countries to participate in studies, like especially for rare diseases. So kind of the the availability of being able to do that for patients and their families. Um, whether they can afford the travel costs or taking the time away from work or managing childcare. I mean, those all can be obviously lifestyle obstacles that pr prevent people from participating. And I can imagine it's, like I say, it's completely overwhelming to be dealing with a disease every day. The emotional toll that that takes on themselves and the family that, that go on that journey with them. And so considering options into the unknown must be incredibly daunting. But also there's in certain communities, there's possibly some mistrust um, about 
clinical research, about the industry. And I think there's there's an awful long way that we need still need to go to be able to kind of create some sort of trust with patients. I think that everything you just said was totally on point. And again, not going to take up time to repeat those things. I mean, that was so very thorough, Becky. I I would call out maybe just a couple of things in, in the second of which you, you really highlighted. I would specifically call out time as a barrier. And Be- Becky talked a lot about the budgetary constraints and we go to those sites that we're familiar with. All of that is very true. And we can probably tie in time with all of those points because time is money. Those, those things do go hand in hand. There's oftentimes just this push to get a study done. And it may be that that push is because of these budgetary constraints, or it may be related to competition. Like we're trying to get a, a, a pharma company is trying to get a drug available prior to something else being out there. I do want to just kind of highlight a situation that happened that I was very, very surprised by. So during COVID, um, when Moderna was working on their vaccine trial, they took a pause in enrollment to ensure minority representation. So that is historically unheard of in clinical trials because everybody's working to delivering to a date that they don't want to miss. Time is a barrier. But Moderna took a moment to say, I I definitely have a date I'm working towards. However, I know I want to do this right. I know I want to make sure that that our vaccine is hitting a robust patient population. And so I was really surprised by, but also very impressed by the fact that that they took the time to do that. So time as a factor. I also want to uh, just kind of tag on to a point that Becky made around trust, and that's trust between patients and their caregivers, right? So research, research has shown that individuals are, are more likely to go to the doctor or listen to a doctor's recommendation when that medical professional looks like them. But we all know that there's also a lack of diversity in medical professions. So there is a a definite trust issue with patients not proactively seeking treatment, even for their most basic healthcare services, such that that then reveals itself in terms of lack of clinical trial to the patient. If we, Becky talked about her friend, which is amazing. She was an advocate for herself. She had gone to seek healthcare services. She then took the supplemental time to go and search and and advocate for herself. But there are folks who have a lack of trust such that they aren't even going to get their basic medical needs met to begin with. So we definitely have to make sure we're tackling that as an issue because we want to see those patients. We want to know what's going on. And on top of that, we also want to make sure that they know that they have an opportunity for clinical trials. Well, thank you, Rebecca and Tracy, for taking the time to have this conversation today. I would also like to thank the sponsor of this podcast, Advanced Clinical, for making this great discussion possible.